impossible to see Snoop Dogg, Eminem, Madonna, Steve Aoki, and the Chainsmokers all in the space of three days. Um, forget about business, it was just all about the party. Hi friends, welcome to the Metacast Roundtable by Navic. We're doing a little pre-recording because uh, I'm going on holiday and so it's actually Monday today. And if you think that we look tired, well, that's because it's Monday. Um, <laughs> so today I'm joined by Anil Dasgupta, co-founder and CPO at First Light Games. Recently arrived in London, uh, so we'll talk a little bit about that in a while. Uh, Matt Diane, lead product manager at EA and contributor at Navic. And also a, a new joiner today, Brett Novak, founder and CEO of Liquid and Grit. Welcome, Brett. Thanks for having me. So as we usually do, uh, do you, could you give us a 30 second intro about who you are and Liquid and Grit? Sure, I started in the gaming industry a pretty long time ago, amazingly, it seems, seems like a short period, but I started in actually some console work with Pete Parsons, the uh, CEO of Bungie Studios for a long time, working on Halo. And then I eventually went to business school and then joined Zynga, where that's where I really got my mobile gaming uh, knowledge, I guess. And then was on Zynga Poker, left there, went to Blue Shell Games for a couple of years and then started Liquid and Grit, which really provides all of the reports and tools and information, not all of, but a lot of the reports and tools that I wish I had while I was at Zynga and Blue Shell Games. And I've been doing this amazingly for seven years now and we cover currently the casual core and casino markets and soon the sports and arcade markets. Why Why did you call your business Liquid and Grit? Is there a fun story? There is actually. So in an interview with Steve Jobs, he was asked what he felt like great product development process was like. And to answer the question, he told a story about Basically, when he was a kid, he was introduced to a, a rock grinder and the rocks being a metaphor for people in product, like grinding, rubbing up against each other, arguing, fighting, discussing. And in that process, he poured in a little liquid and grit powder to basically create these polished stones. So I named the company Liquid and Grit because I feel like we're the sort of the liquid and grit powder to help the product process for game teams. That's awesome. I love it. Um, thanks for the, the quick intro. And Anil, so you landed today at 7 a.m. after a red-eye flight from New York. How are you feeling? Um, tired, as you can probably imagine, but also pretty uh, reinvigorated, I would say. So, yeah, I was out at NFT NYC. Um, being in the Web3 world, I thought it was important to go. I felt, to be honest with you, a bit like some everything in Web3. It did feel like somewhat of a rug pull in the sense that I got to the event and it was not really anywhere near as good as I thought it would be. But I think it was great to actually be in an amazing city, but with so many people in the Web3 world all in one place at one time. I'm pretty sure that your next question, Maria, is going to be to ask me what was the best stroke, most exciting thing that I, I saw there. And I would say that if you played your cards correctly, it was possible to see Snoop Dogg, Eminem, Madonna, Steve Aoki, and the Chainsmokers all in the space of three days. 
Um, forget about business. It was just all about the parties. And, you know, someone once told me that we were in a bear market at the moment, but I'm pretty sure that one party thrown by Mythical Games must have cost them at least $3 million. I've never seen anything like it. Huge venue. Uh, this is the one that you had the chain smokers in. Um, there's people who are blatantly being paid to turn up at the party, shall we say, through the <laughs> bar all night. Um, it was amazing. I don't think I've been to a party as cool as that in probably the last 15 years. Um, so fair play to them. I'm, I'm guessing that they pre-accounted for it six months ago when we were in in a bull run. Um, mm. but yeah, it was a lot, of, a lot of fun and mainly to put sort of, you know, uh, faces to names. Got to hang out with Nico, you know, from the other side of, uh, of the Navic podcast too. That was great fun. Um, but I think it'd be curious to see where we're going. At the same time, whilst all these parties were great, I do think that people were more somber and realising that it's time to build and time to make great stuff, which I think is really what gaming should all be about. So yeah, that was a little bit about what um, NFT NYC was like. I saw your photo shoot with Nico by the <laughs> poolside. I tell you what, those Bitcraft boys can afford some nice hotels, that's what I always say. I was not staying in one anywhere near as nice as his was, so... I also heard that there was a fake Snoop Dogg at the event that a lot of people believed was was the real Snoop Dogg. Is that the Snoop Dogg that you saw, Anil? Well, I, I guess it depends if they managed to get into the Ape Fest or not. You know, that would be my answer to that question. Oh, did you go to the Ape Fest? Oh, I couldn't possibly comment. <laughs> okay, okay. Mysterious. Uh, um, so today we're going to be talking about um, UX for blockchain mobile devices. Uh, is there a recession in games? Who knows? We'll dig into it. Uh, Fortnite is also testing a way to find teammates that better align with how you like to play. And we'll briefly also dive into Miniclip acquiring Cybo. Is that how you pronounce it? Who's a developer of Subway, Subway Surfers. Just one last question before we move on. Uh, Brett, favorite game, recent, and favorite platform? What is it? Oh well, I'm I I mean Clash Royale is it's not that recent, but it's always been a love of mine. I've played it for a long time, so I think I got to give that a shout out here. And mobile would be the would be the platform. Nice of mobile. Kind of lame. Um, kind of lame, but it's just like I can't get away from it. <laughs> It's really fun. I started getting into it. I just didn't have time to continue. Yeah, it's really, the progression feels really satisfying. What what league are you in? What what league? Like what level? Yeah, or I think um, they call it arena. Like I'm six, yeah, I'm, my, my score right now is 6,000. Um, okay. So yeah. You're up there then. Yeah, I know. I keep on trying to, uh, to like I, I keep on debating whether I should, really go hardcore and like try to get even higher but then i'm like okay you got other things to do like don't do it so i kind of like just <laughs> hover at this six thousand. my highest is like 6300 or something 65 um i got once i think um can't remember. but yeah you hear that supercell just target brett <laughs> yeah <laughs> I always, I'm always embarrassed because I, I only imagine the stat of has deleted it and reinstalled X amount of times. Like I'm that, I'm, I'm on that line <laughs> item. It's like stop playing, and then I start again. Yes, yeah, kind of embarrassing. <laughs> well, that's how it works about mobile. And on that note, we'll go to Anil's topic, which is about mobile devices.
Sure, yeah. So my topic is user experience for blockchain mobile products. And what inspired me to bring up this topic is at NFT NYC, there was a, a curious announcement pretty early on, and that was that Solana were going to be making a Solana phone. And everyone's like, what? Uh, have you not heard about other sort of quite bigger manufacturers that have failed making their own phone? Microsoft tried to make their own phone twice and it failed. Amazon tried to make their own phone and it failed. So why do the crypto bros think that they've got a better chance of doing? And, you know, at first it kind of seems like suicidal and what are they thinking? But when you sort of dig into it and speaking around the community, I think what people realize and what it could be quite clever about this is it's an effort to try and bring forward UX in general with blockchain products. So anyone who's ever used it, and I'm not even talking about gaming, which is this whole, you know, even deeper, darker rabbit hole to go down. But if you want to buy crypto, you've got to attach mm -hmm. yourself to a wallet. You know, what's the difference between a custodial and a non-custodial one? Where do you hold your crypto? How do you make a purchase? How do you do all the kind of KYC stuff? There's about a million hoops that you have to jump through, none of which are pleasant. And it's all very painful. And in an ideal world, you know, if you go and pay for something in the shop, you most likely pull out your debit card, you tap it on the machine, it takes the money away from you and you purchase that good. So, yeah, I wanted to talk about this because I wondered what people thought about the idea of trying to make a device that was specifically looking to solve the problem of making crypto easier to use on your phone and, and what it could do going forward. So, yeah, I'll throw it out out there. Is so it, like, is it a phone is it a phone or just a device like i mean because i mean could it be like a card or a little device that you know like a like i'm always imagining a pager <laughs> that you have on you that could be the evolution so what they announced i think it's a fair question to ask is they announced two things firstly they announced that they're making something called the solana mobile stack sms mm -hmm. see what they did there funny guys these crypto bros um that's the software that will be running on it and essentially it's like a layer that can be built on top of android with its own decentralized app store that was kind of the big thing that you can't do on apple um but on top of it to showcase it they also had their own device which would be like the flagship device to show off the power of the sms and the decentralized app store so that's what they've announced um potentially i suppose it, it could be used for a device and that's not a phone in the future but that was the offering that they had at the event uh, so i was going to ask like if you actually need a phone to improve the ux on mobile can't you just do software but it sounds like you answer that question like they're doing the sms to address that and then the hardware piece is extra i don't know like um it, maybe tell me a little bit more about that because it seems like a very expensive undertaking. Um, I, the first thing you mentioned windows phone, first thing I thought of was ESPN phone. Um, another, another failed, uh, venture. Um, but we've already seen kind of the difficulties with supply chain and getting chips and, you know, building phone handsets in the first place for the established players. Uh, how, how are they, how are Solana going to kind of, break into that market and also tackle this additional challenge of, you know, improving UX and uh, blockchain. Yeah, so I think the interesting thing is that I, I personally think that they're actually doing this as a loss leader. I don't think they're actually looking to, to make money through the hardware sales of the phone, but rather they can see the positivity. So their foundation also pledged like a 10 million uh, funding spree for uh, mobile apps using their technology. And that would be the way to kind of push it forward. And I think what they're kind of like 
I think what they realise is rather than developing it themselves, is get people who are better suited and have got better experience to try and solve the UX issue for them. So how should your keys be retained on your device? How can you use it so it's as seamless as possible? And they're probably hoping that some of that software that comes out of it can be used not only on their own ecosystem, but maybe broadly across the whole spectrum. Because it's something that I think people in Web3, we talk about it quite a lot on, on these metacars, you know, every week, how just how problematic it is right now. And these basic building blocks have to kind of fall before people can kind of move forward. And, you know, if you look at kind of history repeating itself, you could say that, like, the iPhone itself was not the first touchscreen device to have been made as a, as a phone, like Samsung, LG, even Microsoft had tried it many times before, but it never really solved it. And really what the iPhone did that the others didn't is it had this amazing UX and a, a native touch sort of screen interface and that brought it to the masses. So the feeling is, is that could be the way that they're going here. I have a, a couple of questions from the gaming perspective. So I I didn't fully understand what you can and can do, but it seemed like it, it the phone is the wallet in a way. Yeah, that seems to be like their most unique thing. So at the moment, you know, you can't do that. If you were to buy uh, crypto on your phone right now, you can do it, but you'll have to have like an app that sets up like a non-custodial wallet, which is uh, not so safe. Um, or you'd have to, you know, be in charge of transferring it there and then when you kind of purchase it. Whereas they're sort of saying by building it into the device natively, um, how it works, I don't quite know, but you never know, it could actually be like it's more of a cold storage wallet despite your phone being online and just the way that things are connected is very secure and very seamless at the same time so we don't have too many details from them at the moment but these are sort of things that could be possible if you've got a native device where everything is all inclusive right so i heard that solana blockchain is struggling to scale and it even went down a few times so do you think that this could also be a play to get from a, you know a wider breadth of creators interested to develop it like for example games for solana because it provides the best user experience you can on mobile for a blockchain game and so you want to develop for that technology uh, and be installed on the app it's all possible i think it's quite interesting because you've touched upon something there which is that people are sort of jokingly calling the solana network the solana not work because <laughs> that's how often it's down um that joke isn't one of mine i wish i could claim it but at the same time, there really are a lot of games that are being built on Solana, including some pretty nice ones. On top of that, you've got Magic Eden, which is like an NFT marketplace. And that's actually right now, in terms of transactional volume, more popular than OpenSea, would you believe? So they're definitely doing something right. And this one, again, sort of feels similar to the sort of ecosystem, again, that they're, they're trying to tackle maybe problems in another way and, and people kind of keep the faith. So... I, I couldn't really comment too much on like the, the stability of it's going to do it. But I think that I would say compared to maybe other blockchains out there, at least on paper, they're doing things that are attractive to people in the space to want to develop on it by thinking a bit more outside the box and maybe not just so much tech bro. Because, you know, that's sometimes the problem is that you can build some amazing technology, but if it's not usable, then no one uses it. I think back again to how, you know, Steve Jobs recognized very early on, like when he was at Xerox Park about the mouse and, you know, he was like, oh, do you guys realize what you've invented? And and they hadn't. And he realized that what they'd invented is a way for people to interact with a computer in a way that felt intuitive. And that was like the billion dollar idea and he moved on it. So um, 
yeah, it's all just speculation, but I think that they're trying to sort of position themselves to be like more than just a blockchain and more of an overall suite of things that can have a lot of usage. Yeah, I think my feelings on it was that I saw in the announcement they mentioned the app stores and you know how Google Play and the app store take a, a cut of the of the revenue and that they weren't going to do that. On the other hand, it seems that they're creating another closed ecosystem because they didn't mention other wallets. They only talked about Solana. They talked about the Solana wallet. And as we can see currently in the landscape, there are so many wallets and the wallets change depending on the blockchain that you're interacting with. So isn't that a closed environment? Well, we'll see if they provide more details. I'm just going off the limited information that I see now. Have they announced a go live date or a release date of some sort? Early next year, I think. Cool. Well, okay. we'll see. Seems, yeah, seems we'll, like a, we'll see. I mean, it. I don't. I don't know a ton, ton about it. Obviously, I don't know. Say this, but it seems almost like a uh, story to raise a little bit more money. I mean, they've raised three hundred million, and when you get to that level, I gotta imagine that your story's got to be pretty impressive. Like, it's got to be pretty big for you to go raise more money. Right. Um, so you have to go. You have to go after massive opportunities. You can't just be like, "Oh, we're just going to change the UI of our existing technology, or we're going to add a button here, or whatever." Right. You have to be like, "We're going to take on a giant market." Right. I mean, you've raised three hundred million dollars. Like, what do you need another two hundred million dollars for? Well, we're going to build phones. Right. Then we're going to build. Then we're going to build people to play those phones. Right. And like, it's like, it's like, a, I don't know. It just seems like, right. Like, then we're going to, are we going to use, pay at, like, I don't know. I'm not trying to, I'm always kind of a little, I guess I'm the skeptic on this stuff. But it's like, you're going to go build phones. I don't know. Seems pretty. Uh, so that's really it's fair to be skeptical, I think. Yeah. Right. Um, well, on the on the investment and acquisitions, no, uh, we'll have Matt's topic. Yeah, mini clip. Oh sure, um, yeah. So my topic this week um, was that mini clip acquired this company Cybo. Again, we we're not sure if we're pronouncing it correctly. Cybo, <laughs> Cybo. I don't know, but they're the publishers behind Subway Surfers, which is. Um, uh, massively successful if you have not played it. It's a, like an endless runner, um, but it's been around. It just celebrated its 10 year uh, anniversary, Subway Surfers did. So it's a long time IP in the mobile game space, which is pretty impressive, I have to say. Um, you got to give them credit for that. But um, anyways, the, the studio that publishes Subway Surfers was acquired by Miniclip for an undisclosed amount. Um, and thought it was interesting for a couple of reasons. One, because this is such a long lasting IP in mobile and it's interesting to see it change hands, um, especially in the context of point number two, which is that Miniclip had recently announced, we talked about it on the pod actually, that they were gonna be pivoting to uh, mobile games rather than browser games. And if there's a company that knows and appreciates older IPs, I think it would be Miniclip, right? Um, they themselves have a number of games that have been around for years and years. So I think this is a big get for them and uh, vicariously a big get for Tencent, which has a majority stake in Miniclip. Um, so a couple uh, quick hitters here. As I said, 10 years old, the game, uh, 30 million average DAU. I would love to have 30 million average DAU <laughs> for my game. That's amazing. Um, most downloaded mobile game ever, according to Pocket Gamer. 
And even as recently as May was the most downloaded game, according to Sensor Tower. Um, and final point, um, I don't know how much to read into this. I've, I've not gone through an acquisition, but the terms were undisclosed. And um, I had read in another chat that sometimes that might be indicative of they didn't get the terms they maybe wanted to get. I don't know. Speculation. But um, oh, uh, sorry. Last point here is that um, it's a difficult UA environment right now, right? Things are changing in user acquisition for a game that is downloaded as much as Subway Surfers is. Maybe it's less of an issue as an established IP, but Cybo has other games in the pipeline that they're also presumably going to want to scale. And so, you know, I was just looking, um, uh, Pocket Gamer does those like, uh, or I don't know if it's gamesindustry.biz, those lists of games in soft launch, most anticipated games in soft launch. And they have one on there called Subway Surfers Match. I don't know much about it, how long it's been in soft launch, but it's like a casual puzzle game. And it's it's in soft launch in, I think, Southeast Asia right now. So that's a game that they have in the pipe that they're going to want to scale and and do some UA against, um, but it's a challenging environment and um, you know, perhaps time for Cybo to partner up with uh, someone that has deeper pockets that can support those upcoming projects as well as continue to maintain subway surfers. So yeah, that's kind of the summary. Um, what do you all think? Like, um, surprised to see it change hands? Uh, what do you think it means for Miniclip? Any sort of takeaways for the mobile free-to-play space broadly? What do y'all think? I've got to say, I don't think it's a surprise at all. I think it fits perfectly into the mini clip strategy. If nothing else, the cross promo potential with such a title is incredible. I've heard that Subway Surface has been downloaded over 2 billion times. Um, now, I'm sure that a lot of those downloads are like the same kid downloading it twice, but still, 2 billion is like, you know, more than a fifth of the world's population having played a game. That's quite incredible. It is a great game as well. So I think from that perspective, it makes perfect sense. I think also if we're being realistic, I think from Cybo's perspective, it's probably much needed. They were sort of one of those sort of like um, one hit wonders in a way. I mean, what a hit to make for sure to get that many downloads. But that game came out a long time ago when the App Store was you know, a lot more naive and, you know, uh, nascent in its sort of prospect. And they never really sort of sold the way to monetize that game. It's got an extremely low ARP DAO, probably, probably average to zero, if we're being honest, uh, across it. And it makes more of its money through adverts and so on and so forth. And they could never really kind of take the next step up and take these highly predicted, you know, retentive games and make them into money makers they tried like a fantasy version of subway service i forget the name but it was got global featuring this was about five or six years ago and it had a kind of like gacha style system in it and it had like this main character again endless runner but with a sword and you could fight stuff and it just did nowhere near the numbers that subway service have done and they've tried many times to sort of make something that could repeat the retention of subway surface but the monetization of anything that's not a subway surface and they could never do it um and that maybe it's just impossible to make a game like that as well by the way so i think this makes like a really good sense for, for them too maybe they get some sort of an exit i think as you just alluded to matt the ability to have that sort of know-how with someone who's been there done that and got the t-shirt be really useful for them and i think it just makes a lot of sense as you say miniclip really know how to spot uh, an undervalued IP that will fit into their kind of network. And I think it's perfect. It's almost like Subway Surface is a game that you could imagine Miniclip having made themselves anyway. So perfect fit for me, I think. Well, I think that was well said. 
I, I think, and I think that acquiring companies for users at this point makes a lot of sense because it's much less competitive than the UA market itself, right? So you can theoretically get a much more discounted user uh, per per user amount if you buy a, a company with, like like Neil said, two billion downloads, right? Uh, just that alone, regardless of the IP itself, is extremely valuable. And you're only competing against a few other suitors, right? So theoretically, you have more information or you can derive more value from that acquisition with your existing games or your, your existing knowledge of game development through IP or whatever it may be. So, I mean, I think we're already seeing this in mobile gaming, a lot of consolidation, but in particular, these are interesting plays because you're, you're theoretically buying the users and expecting to monetize on them. Now that said, I think there's a fair amount of risk in that assumption, right? Because obviously the, the team at Subway Surfer has tried to do that. It's not a secret that that's what they should have, that the, that that's what they should have done. And I'm sure that, that that's what they were doing for the last 10 years, right? Trying to figure out how to make money off of these users. And they're obviously probably good developers in themselves. They created one of the greatest games, mobile games ever. So it's a little bit risky. And I think that's something too we've seen in the past where companies say, oh, we'll, we'll add this to it and the ARP DAO will obviously go up. And that's not always the case. So, um, It'll be interesting to see how it plays out, but I think it's a good move overall. I like the acquisition user play by larger companies. Yeah, I agree. It feels like a natural move for, for Minicup going full mobile. Uh, acquiring a company that knows how to do user acquisition successfully, at least you know that's what I'm assuming because I believe I read that in the last 18 months they went from 2 million to... Um, Oh, sorry. What's the what was it? Yeah, twenty. Sorry, twenty million to around thirty million of average DAU. And considering that was in the last year and a half with all the post IDFA, that's that's quite impressive. And so, yeah, I think Miniclip bring in that experience. They also get deeper pockets, like Matt said, for UA. Uh, potentially also get um, more, you know, with the cross Miniclip the whole ecosystem of companies, more experience and ideas and knowledge to learn how to better monetize their games. Yeah, seems seems like a great fit. I think you all wrapped it up very well. I think it's, a, it's an interesting move and indicative of the times that we're living in with the mobile, mobile space and just sort of the competitive environment. And on that note, we have to go into a sadder topic that Brett already alluded to, the recession. Uh, I don't think it's a sad topic, actually, for gaming. I, mean, I think we're in a, a good position, so I think that's more of my sentiment around it. But and, and I'm sort of here to say that, okay? So let maybe maybe we'll put a different spin on it. So this is in reference to a game industry biz article that yes was titled "The Pandemic Bubble Isn't uh, You Know Is Coming" or whatever you know something like that. The pandemic bubble um, and. You know, isn't oh is bursting is is the point of it, but that then this was more of a console article, and then there's one on Play Tico recently laying off 250 people on the mobile side, but on the console side, it, the point was that the consumer spending is down for the last seven months. Of course, this was comparing it to pandemic numbers. Engagement has declined, and then a quote from Take Two's. 
uh, Zelnick, where he says the entertainment industry is not counter cyclical, despite what people say. After 08 financial crisis, we suffered, our competitors suffered, our numbers suffered, and we don't wish it on anyone. Platika, the, there was another article on Platika laying off 250 people. They did it in Montreal, LA, and London. And according to the company, this was working to unify parts of its activities. The news of the studio closures and layoffs follow after a year in which Platika saw expansion of its business operations. So that's sort of what is getting printed. I'm gonna talk a little bit more about my thoughts on it, which is that I feel that gaming in general, I believe will be protected from the recession. I think that console may be hit harder, will definitely be hit harder than mobile just because of the business model. I think that's well known. I think that what we're seeing in the space is more a reflection of other things like what we talked about with UA being more competitive space, engagement post pandemic obviously being down too and less about the recession. And I see some of this recession rhetoric more and layoffs from Platika, more of a representation of just a natural cleaning up and more operational focus after an expansion year last year, where obviously they were taking advantage of the growth. And they're sort of using the recession as a little bit of a smoke screen, which makes total sense. I would do the same for just, you know, natural cleaning up. I mean, 250 people for Platika isn't isn't likely to be a massive number. They've acquired a lot of companies and they're likely trying to consolidate that in some of those regions. Um, the other thing though it may impact is raising money. And this podcast obviously is a little bit more Web3 focused. I think in terms of capital, my guess if I was a VC would be that investing in higher beta Web3-like ideas may be a little bit tougher, right? Because it's much less... Uh, it's a higher beta and they're probably looking more so towards more reliable markets that are going to be counter cyclical. I do think mobile games is one of those markets. So I would say that the raising of capital for mobile games or potentially for console, though I would say probably not, it's probably much different, much larger numbers is going to be positive. So my conclusion is that yes, there's a lot of rhetoric around the recession. I think as a game developer, as a business owner, as a CEO of a big company, you should always be preparing for potential declines in revenue for whatever reason. So you should be prepared. But I think ultimately it could be an opportunity as you see other markets really get hit. UA prices might go down because we might not be competing with those dollars. So I would actually be prepared to take advantage of uh, these changes. So. That's my <laughs> somewhat short. That's my that's my like selling that this is maybe a good thing. <laughs> <laughs> you did good. <laughs> I, I kind of believe it now. Uh, Matt, you seem like you. Are you a believer? Um, uh, yeah, I, I generally agree. I mean, th there's a lot of different ways to interpret it, right? Like we could talk about consumer spend in some of these areas, or we could talk about like investment from VCs, which is something I wanted to kind of follow up on to a point that, that Brett made about like, well, Web3 crypto is a little bit more higher beta. And I'm wondering if you think like, you know, surely mobile gaming is probably lower beta than crypto and Web3, but still potentially 
somewhat volatile in the sense that like we just talked about the UA environment a little bit being more difficult if you're trying to spin up a new IP in mobile, uh, start up a new studio. Uh, is that something that might be difficult to raise money in regardless, even though it is, you know, relatively safe compared to crypto web three? I don't know. What do you think? Do you think we're still going to see investment in that space? Yeah, I mean, I agree, and I think my point is more that that decline in ability to raise capital in mobile is not due to recession, right? It's due to UA, is your point, I right? See, I and see. so yeah. it's you know the, the rhetoric that's out there is this recession is going to have all this impact on gaming, and I don't think that's the case, right? Like if I have to stack rank gotcha. it, which is what you're saying too, we're both not stack ranking the recession as the thing that's going to cause decline in VC funding for mobile gaming we're both saying it's UA and likely potentially engagement post-pandemic, post right? Um, and so, yeah, I do agree. And I think if, if I was a VC, Web3 would be something that I would invest in as the higher beta option, right? Because, you know, people are still going to want to play games during the recession. People do turn to entertainment, particularly cheap entertainment during times of recession because they want to escape their reality more. So, um I think in games may benefit from it if it does happen. Yeah, I was going to say, I think, Brett, you cut through the fluff really nicely there. I think that was a really good kind of opening statement on the situation. Um, I think it's quite interesting because what happened is sort of last time we almost hit a recession at the start of COVID is that gaming actually boomed because it turned out when people couldn't leave their houses, um, gaming was the one thing they could do. And then people were like, oh, wow, gaming is recession proof. And now it's all turning out that, oh, well, maybe game isn't quite recession proof because spending kind of 70 bucks on your new PlayStation 5 game at a time where the cost of living is going through the roof exponentially. And, uh, you know, in the UK where Maria and I live, you know, there's literally going to be a problem this winter of people choosing between heating and eating. And if those are your problems, then a game certainly isn't high up on the agenda. I have to say, I'm very bullish on it, like yourself, actually, Brett. I think that ultimately it probably will be good for games because, again, if there is a recession, what again tends to happen is people look for cheap entertainment and video games is exactly that. I, I remember when I was sort of trying to save up for money when I was in my early 20s, video games were brilliant because, you know, the amount of entertainment value you could get out of it, you know, go out for one night out um, and cost, you know, tons of money or buy yourself a video game and you can have ent endless entertainment for six to eight months. I'm not that much fun at parties, by the way, you can probably tell, despite my talking about mythical games party earlier in the week. So yeah, I think it's a really good way. And I, I think I don't believe that. <laughs> yeah, me neither. I, call... I don't believe that. I would just like call oh, BS on that statement. I would have to call BS on that statement. Okay, <laughs> Incredibility. There's a... <laughs> <laughs> so I, I think it, it probably will have a better effect. I think we just might not see it right now. I think, you know, the recession's heading everything at the moment all at once. It's not just video games. I think if anything, video games is the least effective of anything. I think though that, as you mentioned, I've definitely seen that VCs are just not cutting checks right now. I think if you were being offered terms right now, they're not going to be the best terms and you probably shouldn't be doing it unless you've got like an absolute dream team or you absolutely need that capital or you go out of business. I think people just are a bit understandably trepid, just want to wait it out a few months, see what's going to happen. You know, we want to see when we hit quote unquote, you know, 
the dippy that you know the dip of the dippiest dip <laughs> you know when there's no more more the bottom can do um and that will probably be you know notified when we start seeing inflation rates hiked or stop being hiked by you know the federal reserve then then we might see more going but i think in general it's still a good time for games as you mentioned brett because now's the time to build if a game is going to take you know one to two years to develop at minimum well actually doing the investment or doubling down on the investment right now makes a lot of sense because by the time markets start to correct themselves the products will be ready so um yeah i think you're right to say that the playtick example is a good one of maybe someone who expanding it a bit too fast a bit too quickly maybe maybe overly bullish last year due to growth now they're just having as you say a correction also when you take on that many new teams a lot of the time you have redundancies anyway right like do you need three data science teams you probably only need one you know etc etc but you happen to pick them up as part of the acquisition so maybe it's just a sort of the natural law and order of things and i think gaming will come back stronger and better than it ever has been it always tends to um, and it may also introduce new opportunities i think actually the crypto gaming one is interesting at the moment many games get labeled as being sort of ponzi schemes rightly so in my opinion but again, when tough times hit, the kind of ability to earn through playing games will probably be even more sought after than it was before. I wouldn't even be surprised, for example, if Axie starts seeing a bit of a, a resurgence later on in the year when some of their new stuff is ready. So be interesting to follow. Um, but I think of all of the industries, gaming is maybe one of the best place to sort of um, have the minimal impact of a recession on it. I wonder if there's a delayed effect, though, because like you are saying, Anil, People may still have savings and will only start seeing the really tough choices about where you don't even have savings to spend on entertainment further further along. And at least in the UK, it's meant to get more difficult throughout the year. We're going to see energy bills go up again uh, when you know winter comes and with the current state of the world in terms of wars and other issues I won't go into. There's no solutions in sight right now to alleviate the costs that are really hiking up. Um, and we might see also people struggling to pay their mortgages as the um, as the rates go up. So I, I think you do cut through the fluff, Brett. I, I remain a bit skeptic. I'll see throughout the year how it goes on, but I wonder if there will be that um, lagging effect. And then in terms of the platforms, I thought it was really curious that you mentioned console could be hit harder than than mobile do you think that is also the case between premium games and free-to-play because the free-to-play model usually relies on a very small percentage of players with deep pockets whilst most people are don't pay anything compared to the premium games and whoever has the deep pockets to already be a big spender they might be less affected by a recession. Yeah, uh, yeah. I, I mean, I think obviously the model free to play is is more conducive to a recession because people can play for free. I mean, it's the, the greatest ROI of entertainment that you can get. Um, I pretty much. Uh, but I think that, and I think the deeper pockets is kind of a little bit of a misconception. I think it's I think it's people who have deep pockets, but also value spending on entertainment more than what we do. Like when we when mm. we. You know, when us the, the sort of like the game developers think about how we're spending things like that, this is not a great way, I think, to to represent the gaming base, right? Like they weight entertainment and things like that much more heavily than we do, right? And you'll also see, I mean, if you're talking about like people who are really, really going to struggle, and and obviously I feel 
feel very badly for them, but you're also going to have capital from governments getting injected into the system for, for those people. And those people, somewhat unfortunately, will also still turn to games as their form of entertainment. They're not going to have jobs. They're going to be at home and they're going to get this free capital. So they're going to use that money to kind of offset it, right? So if you're saying that group is going to cause the decline, that group is going to receive government funding, government stimulus, um, likely, and they're going to use that for their entertainment. So so again, I think it's it's going to be, I think it can be a good opportunity. I, I would just be ready to, to see what happens. Generally, change is good in gaming because games, as we just talked about, the game industry is very flexible, very reactive, very innovative, very fast. And when there's change, that's generally a good thing if you are in that category. When you say ready, what do you mean by being ready? Well, I mean, I could talk for hours about this, but organizationally, you <laughs> you want to build an organization and a system that is optimized for what you currently think is going to happen and what you can't expect to happen, okay? And because life and business and everything else is made up of sort of like unexpected events that happen regularly. And so you want to have a very flexible system. So you want to have like additional capacity. You may want to have contract workers. You may want to um, have some additional capital on hand uh, or a team that's ready to take advantage. I mean, you just basically want to have um, the ability to react to what is happening in the world um, and what has changed in the world and, and be able to take advantage very quickly. Um, so it's a weird dichotomy where you want to have a system that's based on, hey, I think the world's going to go in recession, but I also want to be ready for if it is a recession that's positive for us that we can attack it as quickly as possible. Okay, does anyone have more takes on this or should we talk about Fortnite? Yeah, Fortnite. Oh, on the conversion, I did finally buy the startup bundle on Diablo Immortal. I couldn't resist it. I wanted to look cool. It was a great offer. Wanting to look cool, still recession resistant. Yes. <laughs> um, yeah, just before we move on, one thing that I find a bit difficult when reading these news about the, the layoffs, you know, we saw Coinbase, I believe, laid, laid off quite a lot of people. Um, I, I think sometimes news, rightly, talk about it factually, but even if it's one person being laid off, that's quite difficult. I know people who know people that were laid off in the Playtica from London, and it's, it's really difficult because you find out without much notice what's going to happen. So yeah, a lot of, a lot of love to whoever went through that, and hopefully we won't see that many, many layoffs in the industry. All right, Fortnite. Ooh. So... I have a thing for PvP games where I have a very specific style that I like it to have in my squad when playing multiplayer. I like it to be a little bit competitive, so we're not just laying back, but we're trying to lean into it and win, but not being competitive enough where it becomes like a toxic relationship within that group where, you know, people get angry uh, if you don't play perfectly. I also don't like when my teammates use you know uh, they're angry at the other opponents so they'll, so they'll use attacks on their looks or sexuality or something because that happens a lot in in these multiplayer multiplayer games so i personally i love multiplayer games being in a squad um i've talked about my destiny 2 love but i just find it really hard to find people who 
who I like to play with, basically, and spend a lot of time and work together with. So I thought it was really interesting what Fortnite is trying to do. They're testing like social tags where you can tag one to three on your profile about your preferences, uh, about your favorite game mode, but also your vibes. So if you're chill, if you're funny, if you're intense. And if you have the, the feature turned on, you can then send an invite to someone who's in your server region that matches one of those tags. And so it's a way of limited words, standardized communication to try to find people that you're more compatible with. And we've seen through multiplayer games, like not like I was explaining, not everyone has a friends group to play these games with. And if you have a regular squad, you'll create friendships and that will make you harder to, to leave and go to another to another game. So yeah, I'm really looking forward to seeing what the what the test results will will lead to. Um, yeah, this is in an A/B test right now, and so we'll see if it gets rolled out or not. But yeah, what what do you think, Matt? You also work on multiplayer game. Yeah, I'm a little bit curious about the implementation of this and how they're doing it. Um, but uh, I have seen similar features done on mobile, actually, um, like uh, I know PUBG Mobile has done this before, where you can you can fill out your profile or your player card such that you describe and other games do this too like the play styles that you prefer and that you would look for in potential teammates um i know i don't know if they still do it but they used to have a feature where um they called it like brothers in arms or something for new players coming into the game to get paired with a veteran player to kind of show them the ropes. And then ideally you that's an in-game friend that you've made and you can play together going forward. Um, so I think mobile has been pretty innovative in some of these areas and um, there are a lot of lessons to learn there. But, uh, you know, if there's if there's one game that's, you know, big on social connection, playing together and hanging out in the same shared space, uh, it's Fortnite. And so, uh, you know, I would expect them to be a leader in the space. So I'm excited to see. I, like, I, I haven't seen what it's going to look like in, in action. So I'm curious to see what it looks like. Mm -hmm. And now is this part of your release feature set? Maybe it should be. I mean, I think you've touched upon the fact that, um, you know, these games, they're sticky when you form that social group. So getting people into that group is really important. And it's not just Fortnite. We see this and we see it in so many games, you know, Clash of Clans, 4X games, um, even games like Heyday. If you find a nice group of people, you end up with these situations where people have never met each other in real life and yet they're besties. And you just want to facilitate the ability for that to happen as, as best as possible. I kind of feel like the way that you've described it, it sounds like an okay way to start, but not really powerful enough, but it's still something I assume they'll test. I think something that we should give Epic and Fortnite a lot of credit for is they tend to do a lot of A-B tests, right? I remember how we were talking about before how they removed the base building aspect mm -hmm. as part of a test they did in their game. And I think that's really impressive that a game that's as successful as it is, is not resting on its laurels, that they're using kind of modern video game techniques, i.e., well, I don't know if you call it modern, but the idea of an analyzing and product managing and A-B testing and seeing, well, okay, it works this well, but maybe it could work even better if we if we made some, you know, logical changes and either it works or it doesn't work. So I'm like, Matt, I'm curious to see what the outcome would be. I think on paper, it sounds like a great idea. I feel like the implementation may not go quite far enough. 
because how different is it from just having sort of regular lobby groups where you've just got a bit of text underneath? In an ideal world, what would somehow do is your algorithm would know that you're this type of player and it would just pit you into it automatically without you thinking. But I don't know how to design an algorithm like that. Maybe Brett could do something like that. You need someone who's big brain to do that. I wouldn't be able to do it. But I think spiritually, I get the idea. Yeah, put people into a vibe that they really like find people that are similar to them. The game that you already enjoyed becomes even more fun. You make friends that last forever and, and you really like the game. So clever idea, as you said, Maria, curious to see what comes out of it. There's probably a lot to be learned from a data standpoint too for a game as big as Fortnite, right? People are self-selecting their tags that describe how they play. And then all of a sudden you've got all this data on your player base. They're just volunteering up to you on how they like to play, what time of day they like to play, what modes are their favorite. And then there's, of course, um, some delta between stated preferences and actual observed preferences. And you can measure that um, with your, you know, two or three data science teams that I'm sure Epic Epic Games has. So um, there's probably there's probably a lot to be learned there. Uh, I would imagine it's very interesting. That is so true. I hadn't thought about that. Yeah. Yeah, you could get a characterization of your player base through those, through those tags. Well, at least what they think that they are as personalities. <laughs> yeah, Brett? I mean, I love the direction of it. I, I echo what Matt said. I mean, this is something that's kind of been on mobile for a fair, like a good amount of time. I mean, tagging, I, I, I feel like I hope is V1 of this because it's it, there's, a, there's a lot more innovation that they could do. Like Matt said, is they could do back or I, I can't remember who said that it could be back end logic to recommend other players too because you know everybody thinks nobody self identifies at a an abusive PVP player right <laughs> it's like everybody assumes they're super nice until you get them on you it's does. like <laughs> yeah it's like well I mean it's like. I go, yeah. I mean, you go to these like little league games, and these are all like normal dads during the day, and then you get to like little league, and they're like beating each other up, right? So nobody goes into it thinking. So I, I just wish, I just hope that there's a little bit more progression of it, right? Like predictive models, there could be ratings of players where you could rate players, or you could kick players out of your group in some type of way, or you have, you know, bet like sort of like Uber where you have you rate the players and their preferences because this is a huge problem and we've done um, a lot of research in the core market and this comes up a lot like it comes up all the time like uh, uh, like what you were talking about Rhea is like abusive abusive stuff that goes on in PvP is is like one of the biggest issues right so I hope there's more here to come and they figure it out because um, it, it'll be great for just the gaming ecosystem in general hats off to the product manager or product managers or team who came up with the idea because the more i'm listening to it the more perfect of an a b test this sounds because the 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 effort to create this ai model and optimize it and yeah try to make it work in the best possible way start by having labels that people can pick and then see what happens and see if there's value in it um yeah wow Blown away by product management.
I built a predictive model feature um, when I was at Zynga, and I don't think there's enough of them in mobile gaming. I, the downs, the, the upside is pretty high. They're not they're not insanely difficult to build from a math, from like a statistical standpoint. And the the downside to them is the ability to try to um, monitor them because you know they're, they're sort of like a like a living and breathing entity in your game that you you really don't you can't see sort of the impact as much on them. Um, but I'm a little surprised that there isn't a little more predictive models going on in mobile games at this point. Um, I think that's kind of a big big opportunity for gaming in general with all the data that we have. Well, those two teams of data science, you can go and hire them <laughs> and uh, yeah. have someone trying to explore in this space. And I, you know, I have a good friend who's a, a data scientist, and he's he's amazing. He's like this wizard that you you create a problem, and he'll just find a way to create some kind of model to to resolve to to resolve the problem. Um, maybe it's an expense that most companies cannot have, especially perhaps in mobile with the budgets due to build the games, because data scientists are quite expensive roles, difficult to hire, high salaries, and then you'd have someone that is more experimental without perhaps a specific goal for them to help achieve. I don't know, Anil, you've, you've unmuted. Yeah, I think you're right to say that because I think the companies I know that have the most data scientists tend to be companies like King, um, Playrix, like people that have got like a colossal, you know, cash cow game where they can afford to have this many people. And at that point, they're often not looking for huge wins, but just kind of small amounts that give yourself a little you know, plus 500 bips here, plus 1% there, and, and it all mounts up and it keeps your your cash cow consolidated at the top of the pile. Whereas, you know, if you're a smaller developer, it's not like it's something you wouldn't want to do, but how much time, effort and resource can you put towards it when you don't have this kind of stable of games that you would rather do? Um, I'm curious, actually, maybe a question for Brett is like, you know, when you make such a model, did the benefits outweigh the cost that was involved? Because that's something that is always curious. I think it's one of those things that often comes up. It's like product managers saying, oh, wouldn't it be cool if we did this? But you choose something else that you just feel a bit more confident on. But maybe that's only because we don't really know like the end results. Like, you know, is it something that you've really seen like stratospheric results with or was it just something that was useful? Just a curious question, really. Yeah, it was, it was very impactful and it was great because you weren't using the development team really to do it, right? So because you have your existing game, right? You don't have to add tags and the UI for tags and all those different changes, right? It's mostly the, the data team working to create a predictive model and then the dev team just implementing that in the game and the game itself not really changing. So in terms of a dev cost, it can actually be cheaper in a way because you're using a different group to build it, right? And then the dev team just implements it. Um, I think one of the reasons that we don't see more of it is because there's just so many opportunity for just making broad stroke changes, right? It's like if they don't have tags at this point, adding tags is going to help them. So they should do that first. They should jump to predictive models, right? And But that said, adding tags may in fact be slowing them down to getting to a more optimal solution, right? As opposed to this sort of like V1 solution, which is just tags, where they look at tags maybe a year from now and go, okay, like people aren't tagging themselves as malicious PVP fighter, so we're gonna have to think of something else. And so you know, maybe it's slowing it down. But I think that's kind of why we don't see as many predictive models in the market as as I would expect. 
Yeah, I can chime in a little bit. I've worked with data science, uh, data scientists on a couple of mobile games now, and I think Brett is is spot on. Um, it's probably easier, especially if you're a small studio, to just go out and make a new feature or make big changes than it is to uh, work with data science to implement some kind of model. However, if you're one game within a portfolio of games, you know you mentioned earlier, Anil, a company like King or some other sort of company that has a portfolio of games of similar genre or similar style. And then you've got like a data science team building models that can be applied mm-hmm. across the entire portfolio. Well, that's a different story. Um, and, you know, maybe more worthwhile, like you might have some games that are a little bit underperforming within the portfolio where you're going to test out those models first, get them working correctly, figure out the learnings of like, what do we need to know when we're building this into our game? What are the kind of, uh, constraints and bounds that we need to put into our model and the levers we need to expose to the data scientists, work out those kinks on the underperforming games. And then when you have it ready, you can roll it out in Candy Crush or whatever, uh, you know, the, the top performers. Uh, so that is probably why we wouldn't, we don't see it on a larger scale. Um, but uh, it, it can be pretty powerful in my experience uh, once you've gone through some of those steps. Mm. Yeah, all very interesting takeaways. Okay. Well, I think we'll wrap up the, the episode here. Unless one, anyone has a burning, burning comment, feedback. No, I see a nil. Are you ready to go for a nap? <laughs> he says nothing. No comment. All right, Brett, thank you so much for joining for your first episode. Yeah, thanks for having me. And Matt, insightful as usual. Cool. Well, if you want to, to if you want to join the conversation or add to anything that we spoke about, you can find us on the Navic Discord, and you can also sign up to the free Navic newsletter called Navic Digest to keep on top to the industry news. Um, Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Bye, everyone. (laughs) 